my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. And good afternoon, everybody. It's was it February twentieth today, a handsome Phil. It is indeed, sir. And the uh, spring is going to be here about a month or so. But in any event, uh, uh, we have a wonderful uh, guest today. We're going to have Michael uh, J. Markey out of uh, Michigan, and we're going to talk about his research into uh, Dave Ramsey, his Financial Peace University, and um, his crazy assumptions. But in any event, so we're here to inform and tell the truth. But in any event, uh, uh, Michael, thank you for. Uh, uh, for uh, joining us today, and uh, you, and uh, thank you for stepping up and really uh, speaking the truth about Dave Ramsey and financial peace. And uh, Benny, I have some questions to ask you, but could you first please tell the audience a little about yourself, your background, what you do, and how sure. you get all started on this crazy uh, uh, investigative pursuit? Well, you know, it actually started a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> I was writing, I was interviewed for a piece by what was I think it was a senior advisor, senior market advisor at the time. And at the end of the interview, I had said something about regulations and how I thought it was moving in a good direction. And the writer at the time said, well, that's unusual. Would you be willing to write us a piece on that? And so I think it was 2013, I wrote a piece about how that if we didn't have a different set of regulations for people getting licensed when it came to, if they continued to lump annuity licensing with life insurance and health insurance, um, that eventually we were going to get regulated in a way we didn't want to if we didn't kind of step up. And um, so that wasn't a very popular piece. And then, but it was, I guess, you know, well-written enough, I suppose, that the editor came back and six months later asked me to write something and six months later, and so it just kind of kept meandering. And one day she was, we were kind of going back and forth via email talking about ideas. And I said, you know, have you ever thought about having a regular piece about Dave Ramsey? And I, I gave a few examples, and she goes, I love it. And so I still remember it, the very first piece I wrote. It was a January or a February, and it goes live. They put, you know, they put it online, and I get an email from her maybe two hours after I had gotten the original link, and she goes, um, wonderful news, you're viral. Now, everyone thinking because my age that I would know what that means, I didn't, I, and so I had to reply, I go, what does that mean? And they'd gotten like 12,000 readers in the first hour of it going live, something like that. And so certainly that kind of gave momentum. I wrote that for Think Advisor, it was called Seriously Dave, um, for two years, and then they got bought by ALM. I think I had three editors over just a two-year period, and as they were having a shift in management, it just kind of got lost. And of course, I, I run a practice here in Michigan, and it's busy. I'm busy, and it takes a couple days to not only write the piece but do some of the research. And that was a monthly piece, and it just got. It was kind of like a, a good ending, I suppose. And then recently, the the register, um, because of my affiliation with, I'm the treasurer of the board of the IRFC. Yep. They said, "Well, what do you think about bringing it back? This is a quarterly piece. It wouldn't take up as much of your time." And 
we think it would be good for our, our readers. So we didn't get too creative with the name. It's now called Seriously Ramsey. So that's, that's, how, that's how it all came about. Yeah. You know, the thing I said this, Mike, is that, um, and I've written, I'll have to send you my books, by the way. I've written three books. I don't know if you check my website, but I've, um, you know, I've written three books. And matter of fact, Ed, I'm far, far, well, friends with Ed Murrow, the guy who founded the IARC. Oh, sure. Yeah, Ed, Ed's a good guy. He always encouraged me my work, my work on this stuff. And, uh, you know, there's so much information out there, Mike. I don't know how you feel about uh, financial planning and financial wellness and all that stuff in this country. Um, and I, I have questions about Ramsey, but what do you think of the greatest issues which are facing you know, average Americans. You're in Michigan. I don't know how big is the town you're in. I mean, what what the people? Do they save enough? Do they do they save it correctly? What do you think? Is it safe enough? So I'm in Grand Rapids. That's fastest grow. I mean, Metro Grand Rapids. I guess you could say. I live outside of it, but we've got a couple offices here. And, um, so it's, I mean, we've got metropolitan population, eight hundred and fifty thousand, maybe depending on what okay. metrics you use. So it's a good size uh, town here. The biggest thing that that I see is. People's lack of understanding on compounding interest. And what I mean by that is, so at the beginning of our life cycle, when it comes to economic life cycle, financial life cycle, um, one of the biggest things we can do is even $100 put away a month, you know, translates into a ton by the time you give it 40 or 50 years. But one of the problems, I only deal with people on the end of that economic financial, you know, their working life cycle. And we'll talk about increasing their 401k contribution and say it's $250 a month. Yep. And they go, well, Mike, I'm 10 years out. That's, you know, that's three grand a year. That's 30 grand. What, what difference is 30 grand going to make? And I go, you're, see, what you've done is you've missed the big picture there. I go, because $250 a month, if, you are, are, if we take that off the top and you're, not, you're no longer spending that, so you get to, used to a lower standard of living just of $250 a month, well, that 250 with just 3% inflation is about $400. I think it's like 350 um, 350 in 10 years, which is about $4,000 a year that we no longer need to come up with an income off of your portfolio. Well, that's 40 over 10 years. And I hope, I don't know, but I hope you're going to get 30-year retirement. So that's $120,000 less that we need to have in retirement assets, retirement income. So if you've got a half million dollars, finding 120000 that you no longer need is a huge impact. But most people don't understand that, you know, at the beginning of their economic life cycle, compounding interest is most important towards investments. And I would say on the end of it, compounding interest is most important on their spending. So if I can lower spending by $250, you know, you compound that over that next 20, 30, 40 years, that's a huge difference. So I, I see that's probably one of the biggest things that people look at going, three grand, four grand, an extra year just for five or 10 years, that's not going to be a big enough difference, Mike. Why would I do it? It's not what it accumulates to. It's what it saves you. It's what the amount it reduces the, the stress on or the need on your financial resources. That's the big, that's the big benefit. Yeah. So, so in other words, is that Americans, really, we really don't save. I mean, I've, and I'll, uh, you'll see some of the research. I'll save it, share it with you. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at it, you know, in the Western world, the, uh, the civilized world as we know it, Americans are probably the worst. I, I think uh, during the financial crisis, we were at negative point two, Mike, something that uh, uh, flavor, and now we're I think maybe four or five percent. Um, there's a great study done by the OECD uh, out of Paris, but in any event, I think you know the 
Irish, the French, every, the Polish, everyone out saves us. So a lot of it we just don't save. But um, correct. Uh, yeah, you know. So so, but anyway. So one of the things which um, you know, and I don't know. Um, I'm a Christian anyway. I go to church, and I and I, I kind of my, my my blood boils every time I see financial uh, uh, peace going across the. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, the services and and you know so I've written about Dave uh, Ramsey and th- and this is what I said you had the courage of it now how you know how did you get start writing about Dave in his twelve percent you know rate of return his ELPs the financial empire um, first of all how, how, how does Dave Ramsey make his money so Dave makes all his money based on the sale of his books the sale of his radio I would say the bulk is the syndication of his radio show. And I wrote a piece a couple years ago that got a lot of attention. I found out really quickly that a piece written in Forbes gets a whole lot more attention than a piece written in Think Advisor. And there was a Forbes columnist who essentially said that something about here comes another millennial hoping that the government will increase regulations to uh, squelch their competition as though there was a Dave Ramsey store next to you know our office, and I kept watching people going to the Dave Ramsey store. Because what I had said was that the proposed fiduciary rule at the time, because it had an important change, it said that anybody directly or indirectly compensated for financial advice on an IRA, a qualified asset, would therefore be regulated as a... Um, as a fiduciary, and I said this would be a huge problem for Dave Ramsey because he's indirectly compensated via his books, his speaking, his syndicated radio, and that he would therefore then be regulated as a fiduciary, and that would be, you know, that would monumentally change the type of advice he was giving. So, so now, but the whole thing is that, so what do you, now, this is my understanding, I'm not involved in this, but he has these. Uh, his ELPs, and you can go on the website, DaveRamsey.com, whatever. He has his endorsed local providers. How does that work, Mike? So th- th- that's one that I, I you, ha- you kind of have to chuckle a little bit. <laughs> so when we first started writing, he it was it was a um, his endorsed local provider when it came to investments. It was ca- he called them. Go see one of my investing uh, my in- my investing advisor pros. And so for your listeners. You essentially have two ways an advisor can be regulated. You've got they're regulated uh, um, from a suitability standard or from a fiduciary standard, but the one regulated as fiduciary is called an investment advisor. Yeah. So instead of calling his people, and most are not or were not at the time, his ELPs, instead of calling him an investing advisor or investment advisor, he referred to him as an investing advisor. And so I just kept writing piece after piece going, you can't just make up your own term to make it sound like something that they are not. And uh, he ended up getting fined by the state of Missouri, I believe it was. You can find it. Uh, a $50,000 fine, which uh, is you know, a proverbial slap on the wrist. Um, that A, I think it, that was part of it, and B, that he was holding, because of that, because of the ELP relationship, he was actually holding himself out more as an advisor than what he was you know, legally allowed to do. So he no longer does ELPs anymore. Oh, he, doesn't. he does what they call a smart vester pro. Um, you'll notice that everybody <laughs> he gets in connection with, he'll use terms like they're an expert or they're a pro, but it's the uh, smart vester now. And, you know, the sad thing about that, where I said you're going to have to chuckle, I know of some smart vester pros who 
completely go against Dave Ramsey's philosophies. They believe in permanent life insurance. They um, they believe in annuities. They believe in maybe having um, having student loans is okay, or not paying off your mortgage right away is okay, and or not paying for your kid's college education. That's one thing that I think people miss with Dave's steps is, you know, Dave in his book, Financial Peace, says you have the the financial, as a parent, it is your obligation to put yourself in a position to pay for your kid's college education. And they'll say, you know, that's just not what I believe in, but I associate myself with Dave Ramsey because I get leads or I get new business. And so this whole Smart Vester Pro thing now, they'll say they vet, they'll vet you, but just knowing some of the people that are in the system who do not believe in his overall philosophies, or at least not to a large degree, <clears throat> my argument was, would be that there's very little vetting in the SmartVestor pros now, what used to be his ELPs. Well, one of, one of the things which amazes me, uh, uh, Mike, is this, is that um, few people, and you and thank you for stepping up and really and uh, having the courage to speak up about this stuff, because so very, very, very few people right, know what's behind um, uh, Dave Ramsey. He used to be a Primerica advisor, if you will, mm-hmm. years ago. And um, and if one out of 100 uh, understands that Primerica was actually part of the, I don't know if you remember this, if you dug back on this, uh, Mike, is that uh, Sandy Wilde acquired um, Primerica when he had the Travelers Group back around uh, 98 or something like that. And then um, uh, Wilde essentially emerged Travelers, um, um, which also owned Smith Barney and all that stuff, and he merged it into uh, Citigroup um, in uh, 1998 when it was illegal to do so. And mm-hmm. and then so and uh, Primerica is, tells says everyone should never buy any uh, permanent life insurance or any term life insurance, but when uh, uh, Travelers became part of Citigroup, Citigroup went around and I, and I'll I'll be happy to send you copies of my books, Michael, uh, where uh, sure. Citigroup bought essentially uh, five billion in uh, cash surrender value for their life insurance on their tier one capital. So my whole point in all this is that. You know, Primerica is, is Dave Ramsey's been kind of a, a cheerleader for Primerica. Do you think that's an incorrect um, statement? No, I think that's you know perfectly summarizes it. And we're we're all creatures. You know what we believe today is based on or is influenced by the experiences and the education we had yesterday. Yeah. And so one of the problems I have with somebody who's calling themselves, you know, a financial expert like Dave does is that <clears throat> he's not continuing to further I I guess I can't say this cuz I don't know him personally. It doesn't seem like he's continuing to further his education because you'll hear him make comments about different financial tools or financial products that sound exactly like you would have expected to hear out of somebody who worked at Primerica in the late 1980s. And so when you don't update your skill set, you get locked into those old ways of thinking when the world changes and the things we have available, not everything changes, I get that, but what we have available today is different than what we had available then. I I found one of his original financial peace books when it was self-published, because I was curious because as I've written now for you know four or five years, I've always been frustrated at some of the the lines or some of the points that I'll make that don't make it to the final copy. 
Yep. And as up to, you know, and if, and if I kind of argue a little bit with the editor, they'll say, well, but you couldn't fully prove that, Mike, or but you couldn't do this, or that wasn't as funny as you thought it was, maybe. Yeah. And the editor saves you because the editor knows that the moment it's in, it's in print, it's there in perpetuity. It's there. You're never going to take it back. So I'm going to find his book, his words, before he had an editor. And when you look at finding, there was a few things in there that stuck out. I mean, that original financial piece tells people to count on, to count, to expect an 18% rate of return. Not the 12 he's <laughs> now, but 18. Because in fact, 24%, 18 was easy because 24% is what most mutual funds will give you. Um, you know, that, that's just, it's dangerous. You said 18%. How long ago was this, Mike? Do you know? 92. It, it, it's, it's such hogwash. And, 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 and what gets my irk up is that it's hogwash and you know, uh, you're in Michigan, right? So um, yes. Michigan's got a real big pro- underfunding problem with their state pension. Am I correct? Uh, so it was a tr- Detroit That's, went bankrupt because of their states do, yeah, yeah. So like Detroit went bankrupt over their funding and pension. Mm-hmm. And when you have these large pensions like Detroit or the uh, state of Michigan or, or Illinois, I mean, next door you got you know you got the Chernobyl mm-hmm. of pension plans. <laughs> If these professional investors with with billions of and and, and actually even trillions of uh, wealth can't get uh, you know six seven percent rate of returns, how are people going to get eighteen percent or or twelve percent? Uh, how long have you been in this business, Mike? Do people it doesn't go linear like this, does it? No, no, and that's the problem because he uses. There's a few problems with this. Number one, he. If he really, really, really gets pushed on it, he'll say, come on, it's an average rate of return. And you can make an a argument using simple averaging that he's right. But simple averaging isn't how we get... Simple averaging is very misleading. Because if Dave stood next to a homeless person, the simple <laughs> average of the average income between the two of them might be $5 million a year. That doesn't reflect, though, that one's broke and one's making $10 million. That makes sense? Yeah. Um, and when he, the problem I have is that in other examples he said, well, it's it's to get people excited. It's inspirational when they see the effects of compounding interest. But I relate a lot to behaviors and the behavioral side. Like you talked about not saving enough. We don't save enough because our behaviors, you know, haven't been ingrained into that. That's part of it. Yeah. And you know, it's it's very similar to weight loss. And when you look at the explosion in the 1980s, 1990s of the lose 30 pounds in 30 days, you know, in late night infomercials, and people bought into those. And even if they lost 10 pounds in 30 days, which is actually probably pretty good, but if you expect it to be 30, you're not happy. And you then start going, well, that's not what I expected. It's not worth then, therefore, the effort. Whereas if they told you you'd lose six in 30 days and you did 10, it's the exact same amount of weight loss, but your perspective is different, and you actually get more excited and more motivated and more inspired to keep going. So my problem with using high rates of returns is those who underperform that, which is likely, they don't just go, well, you know, because he always says, well, if I'm half right, look at how well off you are. Nobody looks at it that way. If they get 6% rather than 12 they go, no, they're not going to look at it and go, well, I'm so glad I put it away. Instead, they look at it like somebody stole that money from them. Somebody lied to them. And then what it does is it makes them 
disillusioned to keep going, to not put as much away. They don't increase their, why am I going to increase my contributions if it doesn't work the way that I was promised it was going to work? And that's the problem of it. All right, Mike. So I'm going to throw some uh, kind of a curveball at you. I um, I don't know if you know of this, but uh, we we talk about private equity and bankruptcies a lot on this show. But um, mm-hmm. uh, Dave Ramsey's uh, is uh, is uh, what is he like? Them 500 stations, 545 stations, something like that. And um, and I agree with him on the debt. You know, his he said one of the biggest mm-hmm. problems in America is that I know I wholeheartedly agree with him. Mm-hmm. But did you know uh, that his biggest outlet is iHeartRadio? And did you know that iHeart has been bankruptcy for roughly about 11, uh, 12 months now? So, no, I didn't know about their <laughs> bankruptcy. But funny story, I did know his biggest outlet was with iHeart. Um, we do a, my wife and I, we do a radio show here locally. And iHeart came to, they sent me like email um, some sales rep at the, at the beginning, it didn't sound like a sales rep, but they came over to us late last year. And so they come in the office and they give the whole spiel and they said, we'd love to have you on iHeart. We think your show would be great. And here's what it cost. And so we were interested. I didn't really, I thought maybe, you know what, maybe we'll buy a station or a time slot and then, um, they'll bring us on for more. Cause that's what's happened with some of our other partners. We bought the first, say we bought the first time slot and they said, well, we like your show. We want to add you to our sister station in this market and whatever. And a week later, after the salesperson came in and made their, their proposal, we get this weird email that just said, um, upper management has decided that we no longer think we're a good fit. So one of the pe- people, one of our team members from the office, she calls in. I said, cause I, I talked to the person, I talked to her name, Suzanne. I said, Suzanne, this makes no sense. They were all, I mean, they came to us. We didn't reach out to them. They came to us. And so she reaches out to the that representative and they go, well, our upper management listened to the show. <laughs> and, and it obviously had been one that, you know, talked about Dave Ramsey. <laughs> and she goes, we're not comfortable putting you on iHeart anymore because we think that that, you know, if Dave found out, we can't have somebody who'd be against Dave on our station. Dave's too big of a, a sponsor for us. Yeah. We it, were blacklisted from, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'm in their whole iHeart system as, <laughs> no, you can't bring them on, but at least locally, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten stations, it was, nope, we're, we're, we're no longer interested in having you anymore. Yeah, it, it's it's. I hate to say it's all about the money because, well, you know, um, uh, I'll give you a great example. Um, uh, I, you know, I love the Wall Street Journal. I subscribe to it and the whole thing. But, uh, uh, but you know, Dave um, uh, Ramsey is a writer for um, uh, Thomas Nelson Publishers um, in in with Nashville. Because actually, I <laughs> actually believe it or not, uh, about ten years ago, I actually met Dave uh, Ramsey's. Uh, uh, agent uh, with Thomas Nelson, okay. and he's one of the biggest uh, sellers um, uh, of books for Thomas Nelson. And actually, Thomas Nelson is, I think, the largest. Well, the, it's now the second largest uh, uh, Bible publisher in the United States. And mm-hmm. um, and, and you're never going to believe this, but uh, Thomas Nelson was taken over in a leverage buyout, uh, a debt uh, uh, leverage buyout in 2006. But it was flipped a couple of times until uh, Rupert Murdoch bought it, and uh, so now the the uh, you know so Ramsey's essentially is a sells a lot of books. I think he's consistently like the number one or uh, you know financial piece. I think it's financial piece that is still is a big seller. Am I correct? Yes. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, they keep. They, I mean, it certainly sells. And total money makeover. That's a that's a big one. Those are probably the strongest ones. And then <clears throat> all the Ramsey personalities. I think there's five of them now. And so what you see with these, you know, I, I think that name that is what he calls these other people that are there talk. You know, kind of reteaching his philosophies. He calls them personalities, and I don't think it could be any more fitting than that. Because when you go through them and you start looking at, like, uh, Chris Hogan, who they'll say is a financial retirement expert, and then if you try to find anything on him, like, well, why are you an expert? Well, they'll say, well, he was a vice president of some insurance, um, which sounds like agency. Well, everybody in the insurance world says they're a vice president for some reason. (laughs) So that's not, you know, maybe if you're not in the insurance world, you go, oh, it's impressive. He was a vice president or something. If you're in the insurance world, you go, I know people who are making 40 grand who are, quote, unquote, vice president or something. And, uh, but now all of a sudden what happens is they get on the Ramsey team, they become a Ramsey personality, they write, you know, a book, and then Ramsey pushes that book. He says, oh, this is going to be a great book, great book, blah, blah, blah. And he gives credibility to this Ramsey personality. And then what happens is the Ramsey personality, a year or two years later, starts giving credibility back to Dave, saying, yeah, I'm the financial expert, but Dave is great. Listen to Dave on debt. And, it, you know, I mean, it, it, you, can't, you can't say the guy's not a great marketer. Oh, he's a phenomenal marketer. Incredible. He's gaining extra credibility by giving credibility to somebody else who then gives it back. And I don't know how we get the church involved in it. You know, I mean, um, I don't know how he ever dealt <clears throat> But that's, he, he, he's wired in. I mean, I've been in num, nu, numerous churches. I don't know if you go to a uh, uh, Bible-based church, uh, mm-hmm. Mike, but uh, I don't know. Is he in your church? He's in mine. No, he hasn't been in ours. Um and we just switched here about two years ago. So it, he was in the previous one. I think he got, you know, it's one of those things that I meet fans of. I mean, it, and that's really what, if you meet people, by writing the column about Dave Ramsey, the Seriously Dave and now the Seriously Ramsey, I will tell you that those who are fans, I mean, they, 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 can, be, they can be fan-fan. I mean, they can be almost cult-like. I mean, when we, when we oh, got yeah. first, that first, um, series when it came out maybe three four months in I started getting anonymous letters and anonymous phone calls and I will tell you I learned something that if somebody writes you anonymously or calls you anonymously it's never to tell you what a great job you're doing <laughs> it's never if they're anonymous it's never going to be positive feedback I promise you that so they people get really wrapped up in Dave but I've had some people come into our system as prospective clients and I'll stop them when they start telling me all these I had one that taught a financial piece I said, you know what? I think you need to go home. You need to you need to see some of these things I've written because the last thing I want to do is get through, you know, our system and, you know, a month and a half later, you want to come on board and then you read this about me and you read what I've written about Dave. And now it, it, that's just a waste of your time, waste of my time. And I've had a number of them come back and go, you know, I I didn't know, you know, I didn't I would have never thought that. Like, I wrote one piece a while ago. It was when he first came out with this um, employer side. And it was teaching employees on, you know, better ways to invest in their for, their employer plans, the 401K, the 403B, that sort of thing. And, you know, of course, they charged the employer a fee for it, but it was supposed to increase morale. And, you know, if your employees aren't worrying about money, they're going to be happier. And I agree with all those things. Ramsey was but doing this? inside of this, it said, 
you know, we, we will do this. We'll tell them how, how to invest. We'll do this. We'll give them education, blah, blah, blah. And then if you read the terms of service or the privacy agreement, but it's one of those you click on the little link at the bottom. Yeah. And three or four things that the website specifically said it would do, it then specifically said in that in that terms of service agreement, yep. we don't do this. We don't do that. You know, it may sound like we do that, but this isn't to be construed as financial advice. It's not to be, you know, so on one page it says, yes, we'll give them advice. We'll tell them what to do, what to buy in the next page. And the little fine print, it's, we are not an advisor. We can't be misconstrued as one. And no, we're not actually, you know, we cannot be held liable for any advice we're giving because it's not advice. It's whatever. I think he uses the word counseling most of the time to get around that. But Yeah, I can't, I can't believe it now. I, you know, I have an advisory firm. I had one for, I uh, hate to say it, uh, a long time, 30 years. But I, I don't know about you, Mike, but the compliance, you know, uh, and I do work in multiple states, and I, I don't know, all right, so I, I, I just got another legal bill, compliance bill, whatever. And I, I sleep at night. And I, well, we, we have to, as you know, Mike, we have to go through inc- incredible compliance. Would you agree? Okay, it's, 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 it's borders on, I don't know, uh, it's, it's awful. But in any event, um, I heard one one time that our industry is the most highly regulated industry, and I forget what you know whether per capita or whatever it would be, but it was the most highly regulated industry out of all other um, industries in the country. And you kind of, I don't, if it's not true, it's got to be close. But you start to think on what that entails over and above and beyond other industries, and I, I mean, it just yeah. kind of. Yeah. Parallel to the point you're making. No, so so, but my point is, is that you, you and I know, you know, because you know, I'm an RA, so the state can come in, open my, uh, look at everything I have, you know, I have full disclosure, and I, they've they've actually done it. Um, so we're highly regulated. How is he is is Ramsey even licensed for any? Talk about this stuff. Is he licensed in insurance? Is he licensed securities? I don't know. <clears throat> what do you? I was able to find a insurance license from somewhere in the 80s to early 90s, mid-90s, I forget exactly. I think it was a 12-year span, but most of that that span was when he was in real estate. And so if he was as successful as he says he was in real estate, building up a $4 million portfolio during this period, then you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, if you're that successful at that, you really weren't an insurance advisor, insurance salesman, or insurance advisor, insurance representative, whatever word you want to put to that. You were a real estate person who happened to have an insurance license. Now, when it came to securities, but he's definitely not no insurance license now. No, when it no came insurance to securities, license. though. <laughs> I don't know why. Again, like I've said, I've been writing on this for two and a half, three years with a like a six month, one year break in there. Um, I guess for four years then with a one year break, and you know, I, I double check his math. Like when he's talking to a listener, I, I've got countless examples where he'll say, well, you're making this much, you've got this much debt, you can have it paid off in a year then. And it sounds good when he says it, but then you go, wait a minute, hold on, time out. You've got taxes you've got to pay for, you still have basic living expenses, you've got rent, and it becomes completely, you know, wrong. So I always double-check the math, and I, I thought one day, why have I never checked, double-checked his licensing? <laughs> so I started looking for, I found the insurance license. I started looking for a securities license. And I go on a federal website, can't find it. I go to the Tennessee website, can't find it. Um, I finally called the Tennessee Register of, um, or Director of Registrations. And it was funny because I got right through. Like I'm okay. thinking it's going to be you get to somebody, you get to somebody, and finally, you know, three, four, or five um, pass-ons, and you finally get to them. No, I call in, it's immediately this person 
and I start getting a little nervous. I'm maybe even shaking a little bit. I'm certainly anxious because I'm thinking, all right, I'm calling into Tennessee, and I'm going to ask about Dave Ramsey, and people in Tennessee, I have to imagine, love Dave Ramsey. So I go, I'm looking for a license online that says that if, if you're concerned about the licensing of somebody, you should call in. She's like, yep, yep, what's the name? I go, um, David Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets silent. And she goes, did you check online? I go, yeah. And she goes, well, there's multiple David Ramseys. I go, I know there's multiple. None are the lining up with the one I'm looking for, though. I go, I'm looking for David L. Ramsey third. And I get sound again. I go, you know, duh, Dave Ramsey. And she goes, uh-huh. Well, and she goes, I don't have any, you know, if it wasn't online, then I don't have any records. And I go, well, I just thought maybe that you have a different system that you can look into. And she goes, again, I'm telling you, I don't have it. And I, I forget the question I asked her, but I, 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 I just wanted to be sure. So I, I asked one more time, and she then reiterated, she goes, I and we, the state of Tennessee, have no record of Dave Ramsey ever being licensed. Security. And the so. reason that was so important is because, remember I said earlier, and it's funny how this just came full circle, about how I bought his original financial piece book. Yeah. Because I wanted to get one before he had um, an editor. Yeah. Well, in that original book, it said that he had, has or had, and then it listed off a number of licenses. One of those licenses was a securities license. Hey. So either the director of registrations lost it, federal government lost it, it's possible, or I didn't find it, or he's not licensed, or never has been. But even if, even if I'm wrong, and he was, we're, you're talking about being licensed for one or two years, 30 years ago, basically? Which is, which is, which is... I mean, where else would we give that much credibility to somebody who had that small of a window of experience, and that window was that far in the past? Because I agree with you. I'm, I'm good with his death. And I think that's right. I think too many people are in too much debt, and they don't realize the consequences of those debts. But I also believe that, you know, when you look at his original book, Financial Peace, he chastised people for only having $500 in savings and checking. Yeah. You know, he said, before you do anything else, you build up an emergency fund. And now he's gone away from that. He has gone away. Yes, step one is a baby emergency fund, but it's $1,000. If I adjust that for inflation, that's right around the $500 that when he wrote his original book, he was chastising people for only having. And you could say, well, he grew and he's understood how people spend whatever differently. But I encourage anybody who maybe gets upset by hearing some of this stuff to buy that original book. Find a first edition. Because I, I promise you, I think you'll find it interesting, not just about like the 18 and 24% rate of returns, like <laughs> I said earlier. But the Dave that wrote that book comes across as a totally different Dave than you heard today. That was a Dave that was coming off bankruptcy. That was a Dave who you could tell was humble. That was a Dave who you could tell took too much risk and yeah. got burned by it. Yeah. And was trying to tell people, don't take these same risks. I mean, you'll never, I've never heard, I've listened to a ton of Ramsey now. Um, I always joke more than his wife Sharon would ever want to. Um, <laughs> but what... I've never heard him bring this up. 
But in his book, he talks about how this bankruptcy didn't come out, his bankruptcy didn't come out of nowhere. Banks were warning him they thought he was over-leveraged. And he goes, I was arrogant enough just to tell them they were wrong. And when one bank would tell me I was over-leveraged, and like this was a series, it wasn't like it happened once, it happened multiple times in his own words. He goes, if a bank... If a banker even alluded or insinuated that I was over-leveraged, he goes, I would take a, you know, if I had a $100,000 line of credit with him, which it sounded like it was, that was the normal. And he goes, if I was at $85,000, i would ask him for a $10,000 cashier's check. I'd take that cashier's check, I'd go home, put on my best suit, get in my Jaguar, I'd go park at the corner office, because that's how the banking done, the president of the bank used to be at the corner office. I'd bring in my tax return, which always looked good. We had no cash flow, but my return looked good. And I'd go in and I'd bring the $10,000 check. They'd see me in a suit, Jaguar, and everything was done with a, a shake of a hand. And I'd walk out with a new $100,000 line of credit plus their Amex gold, you know, silver, platinum, whatever it was. So, so that, go ahead. No, but yeah, so this, the, my whole point is, is that, so, uh, and, I, and I feel for him in that pain. You know, I've gone through similar situations and actually it's in one of my books and I, and I fully disclose it to everybody. So I understand mm-hmm. that, but... Uh, the level of arrogance because um, you know he thinks like he tells people should never buy things like whole life when you understand it is is probably one of the best financial products anyone can own but uh, but because he's got 545 stations and in the Christian church, uh, church's uh, ear he, every he's been kind of been blessed I mean I, I mean so yep. um, you know it's this American capitalism I think you know if I with my ADV and all that stuff if I said this stuff I mean. Um, I can get locked up. So could you. Right. <laughs> Fined. Censored. Yeah. In a license revocation. You know, I, I, the whole life one, to me, is, all, is, one of the, is one of the crux on Dave's argument. And that one gets to, you know, both sides get just passionate about that. Yeah. But I was listening to a previous episode, and it was an episode, I think he was 54 at the time. I don't remember now. And he said, you know, I still have several million dollars in term life insurance. And he said, and he said to the caller, do you know why? And the guy goes, no. He goes, SWI. And the caller goes, what is, what's SWI? He goes, because Sharon wants it. He goes, my wife Sharon wants, would rather have that couple million dollars in life insurance than a new shiny thing on her finger. Those are his words exactly. And so Dave's whole reason that whole life or permanent insurance is not necessary is based on three fundamental um, assumptions. Number one, you'll follow his system, you'll get out of debt, and you'll reach a point in life where it's no longer mathematically needed. Yeah. Number two, that you will buy term when it is when the coverage is needed and you'll invest the difference. And number three, that difference will earn a 12% rate of return. Well, we get lost in the weeds arguing about the 12%, arguing about whether somebody will or will not invest that difference. But the point number one, that he makes, which is that somebody at one point will outlive the you know mathematical need for life insurance. That right there disproves his whole crusade against permanent life insurance. Do you think Dave Ramsey, I believe that Dave, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, I believe he probably has no debt. I, you know, he yeah. says everyone should have no debt. I believe he fully probably has no debt. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I, he's got a big house. Um, I believe if Dave died today, something happened, there's probably more than enough ongoing revenue for his family to continue on the path that they're on. Maybe adjust it somewhat, but not to a significant degree. Uh, nothing that a couple million dollars in term life insurance would have any meaningful impact. Yeah. So Dave has outlived the mathematical need for life insurance. 
yet he still owns it. He still owns it. So there's two pieces of that. Number one, I, so we did we did the math and said if Dave had bought permanent life insurance when he had gone at the crusade against it, would it have been better? And, they, and I think he would have to live into his mid-80s because he's buying life insurance past the point where it's mathematically needed. He'll have to be in his mid-80s, late-80s, to the point at which paying all these extra premiums, because at this point the term life is costing him more, of course, than what the level premiums would have been to offset that. But the other piece of that that you know, is kind of, I think, more important is in his own words, he always says, well, life insurance is a horrible investment. We don't have to argue whether it's an investment or not because we buy insurance for the way it makes us feel, yeah. the security that we feel. The same reason he's saying his wife still wants it isn't because she finds looking at the policy or the contract fascinating. It's not like everyone comes over and they go, hey, you want to see our, our life insurance policy? It's one of the best policies you'll ever see. It's not in the credenza. You know what I mean? It's the way it makes them feel, the security, the safety of it. So when you look at it that way and you go, well, you've outlived the mathematical need for it, but yet you still have it. Why? Because it feels better with it. Yeah. I agree with you. I think life insurance can be an investment, but his whole argument that it's a horrible investment, well, I'm gonna it say, goes by the wayside when you, you're not treating it like investment, which he's not. He's not treating life insurance like an investment. And permanent insurance would have been cheaper at this point for him because of the fact that he's carried it and continued it past the mathematical need, which a lot of people do. Well, Mike, I'm going to send you some of my books because you know who the biggest per- purchases of uh, permanent life insurance are, by the way, in annuities? No, I'm no, no. sorry. I, I, you, know, you know who the biggest purchases right purchase of life insurance and annuities are? You know who the biggest Yeah, pur- banks. Yeah, okay. I'm the guy who kind of cracked that. I'll, I'll send you the that, that, that code. But um, uh, but I think the, the greater problem, uh, Mike, is, is that he shows that every, the market goes up in a linear rate of return, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, if, and, I, and I've done study after study after study uh, with actuaries and other people that people, you know, you know, rates of return in the market are not that much better than 30-year treasuries. But uh, uh, Will Pierce my, uh, uh, has, a, uh, has a question here he gave to me. He says, does Ramsey use an audio disclaimer on his show, by the way? Do you know if he, does he use a disclaimer on his show, Mike? I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm very seldomly catching it at the beginning because when I'm tuning in, it's on, you know, if I'm driving back to from my office to the house, but um, I don't think it says... You know, before implementing, you know, if we're talking about the disclaimers, it sounds something like before implementing anything heard on the show, please see a qualified licensed representative. I don't, I don't believe it has that. Wow. So how their could... argument would be that his argument is he's not giving his argument to a regulator is he's not giving financial advice. He's giving counseling, but his argument to an individual is that he's giving you, you know, financial advice. So it's two arg. You know, it's the, it's both what side. arguments suits, yeah. suits best at the particular time. Well, Mike, we'll, we'll come to the end of our show. How can people find out more about you or contact you? Uh, uh, you're out in Michigan, out by Grand Rapids. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quick Google search. We The team has done a pretty good job. You can also check us out at uh, Fireproof Show on Twitter. I can't believe that I'm actually talking about Twitter these days, but <laughs> we had to figure that thing out here a couple about a year, six months ago. So... Um, that's probably the easiest way. You got questions? Go to Fireproof Show on Twitter, or uh, go to our website, Legacy Financial Network, all one word dot com. Well, thank you so much, Mike, and keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. This is great information that people need to hear it. 
This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?